This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. When I am weak. Now, when Paul is describing that, he's talking about himself. However, there is a great irony in this, and that is when the I am became weak, uh, we saw the greatest demonstration of power and strength this universe has ever beheld. So it's just a, it's a great ironic title in that. However, the main focus of today isn't on the, on the fact that God became weak for us, even though that is a backdrop for everything. It's the fact that there's a pattern in weakness that God intends for us to cherish, and most of us spend a good deal of the energy of our life fighting God's pattern. In other words, we do not want weakness. We want to feel strong. We want to have plenty of financial surplus. We want to have plenty of physical strength. We want to have all our relationships healthy at all times, and we don't want anything beside. And yet, in this life, there is a requisite weakness that God allows, and it's for a purpose. And when we embrace that and cherish it instead of fight it, we will find the strength that God intends us to discover. So I have a subtitle to this, The Secret Channel Through Which God's Strength is Revealed. So uh, Paul is describing this fact that he has a thorn. And I've given quite a few messages on Paul's thorn in the past. This message isn't on Paul's thorn, praise God. Uh, But it is talking about Paul's response to a weakness. And that's even what he refers to it as, a weakness. And he said, and God says to Paul, my strength, my, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Like I said, there doesn't, So far, we may not have covered any new territory for you. And yet, there's a few things in here that I want to notate, and that is, therefore, I take pleasure. Well, that's not necessarily in agreement with the way many of us are appropriating our similar weaknesses. We don't know what Paul's thorn was. And I think that's on purpose. Lest we create a cloud of vagueness over the fact that this is what all of us get to share in which is a weakness that is requisite or required even in our spiritual growth through which God has chosen to reveal his great strength. So right now, each of us can allow the Spirit of God to define those points of weakness in our lives. Some of you, it is financial. Some of you, it may actually be physical weakness. For some of you, it might be circumstantial. It might be relational. And it creates a great ache and a great pain. And it's something that you desire to get out of. You desire to see solved. You desire to have it remedied. Now. Not later. Now. That's a good sign of weakness right there. We crave in the natural man a solution to our weakness. We do not want to remain in that state any longer. 
And yet, how we deal with that, that weakness, is of the utmost importance in our growth as a Christian. So, setting the stage, throughout this message today, I'm going to be going through the story of King Jehoshaphat. And it's quite a name. Kids seem to love that name, uh, King Jehoshaphat. Uh, and I happen to think, it seems like there should be a lot of songs, Christmassy sort of songs around King Jehoshaphat, don't you think? <laughs> setting the stage, who? King Jehoshaphat, King of Judah. So at this time, we're in the split or divided kingdom. So we have 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel that are in the kingdom to the north, uh, and that's known as Israel. So all of God's people are known as Israel, but in the time of the split kingdom, we have a division. So that's why you see kings of Israel, and you see the, uh, the order of the kings and the secession of the kings of Israel, and you also see kings of Judah, because then Judah and Benjamin actually formed the uh, kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Judah had a capital known as Jerusalem. The kingdom of Israel had a capital known as Samaria. So you've ever heard of a Samaritan? That's how you can understand a very key uh, point in history to understand the stories of the kings. So uh, the kings of Judah, in, in the kings of Israel, by the way, just as a notation, there is not one good king uh, in that lineage to the north. They all just went sour. Uh, however, in the south, there were some good kings. And uh, they're rare, uh, but there were some good kings. Jehoshaphat was one of them. So what? The kingdom of Judah is weak and surrounded by three powerful nations set on destroying them. Uh-oh. Uh, where? Jerusalem, Judah. When? Around 850 B.C. That's debatable, but that's pretty close to the, the date for this. Second Chronicles 20. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. So we have a battle of three armies coming against uh, the little small diddly squat power of Judah. And so these are called dire circumstances. In fact, everything about what I'm going to describe for you would be a great illustration of weakness. Now what's interesting is last week I described a similar story, but it was a different story, and that was the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Now what's interesting is what you'll see all throughout the, the storyline of Scripture is God seems to allow his people to get into an impossible situation. Now if if he's going to allow all throughout history, now a lot of times that is a correction for sin, don't get me wrong. However, it is in our life too. See, a lot of us think that you know, God is, you know, he just wants to get us to some stable place and then leave us alone, when in actuality God is in the sanctifying business, which means he is constantly going deeper. And you may be uh, up to date in your obedience today, but there might be some compacted things that God still hasn't revealed to you that he wants to deal with. And so there's nothing like a good bout with weakness that will bring us to our knees and allow the Spirit of God in to a deeper level to say, <clears throat> could we deal with that? You didn't even see it. In fact, you weren't even walking in willful disobedience, maybe. However, God loves you too much to not take you deeper, further in. And so as a result... We see a similar situation like this. It may not have been a direct result of sin or direct result of Jehoshaphat being an idiot. It's the fact that God loves this country and God wants to reveal his nature, his power, his strength in and through it. Not just to them, but to us and to all the world. Part one, the necessary weakness. I don't know that many of us like that uh, word necessary being stuck in there. The necessary weakness. Uh, 
Now, I've had many discussions with God in the last couple weeks over this exact fact. And I'm trying to be as blunt honest with God as I can. I say, God, in my natural man, I want out of this test right now. However, I recognize something, and that is that as long as I'm in this test, my prayer life is thriving. And I feel very close to you. And I love that. But then there's a part of me that doesn't know how to pray because I want to pray for relief from this because it is agony. And yet, I want your presence more than anything. And so I agree with you. And if you desire this to be prolonged, I will cherish every bit of the intimacy that I gain in and through it with you. But if you would choose to lift this, it would be a great delight. And then, of course, I think, and then do I need to say that you could then give me another test? (laughs) Because God loves me too much to not continue to keep me on my knees. The four mindsets of the triumphant. So you'll notice in your notes that with each one of these, I'm going to build. So if you, I don't want you to peek at the, at the upcoming sections, but I'm going to add one of these mindsets uh, to each one of our little uh, subsections. So this first one this is, is the strength of weakness. Weakness, by definition, in this natural realm is weakness. <laughs> That's what we understand. We know what we mean by that. Lacking strength. And yet, the strength of weakness... That doesn't make any sense. There's no strength in weakness. It's, by definition, weakness. Well, so is impossibilities. Impossibilities, by definition of the natural realm, mean impossible. And yet, to God, all things are possible. And so God takes impossibilities and makes them possibilities. God takes weakness and turns it into strength. Only he can do it. You can't. And yet, when we offer him our weakness, he says, that's the stage on which I play. You see, God desires us to cherish it as an opportunity to show him. If we try and show him in and through our strength, we cannot reveal him. That's our strength. It is not his. His strength is made perfect in and through our weakness. So your weakness is the stage on which God performs his grandest feats. If you are strong and in need of nothing, then the power of God cannot be revealed in and through your life. Our culture specializes in not needing God. As Christians, I want us to embrace the fact that God will lead us down paths where we could turn to the American culture to meet the need. But instead, he wants to train us to embrace that weakness and not go to a false solution, but to go to him. The frailty of humanity is felt. So in our story of Jehoshaphat, we're going to begin here. Now he's surrounded by three armies, right? So what's Jehoshaphat's response? And Jehoshaphat feared. Now this is a a man who actually is going to do the right thing in this story, and yet his initial response sounds fairly similar to ours, doesn't it? You see, this is natural man, and yet when we begin to recognize that our natural man is weak, and that we do not have the power to stand up against three armies, you're going to see an action within Jehoshaphat that I want you to take note of. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. What is a fast? It is a deliberate choice to say, this vehicle known as the human man cannot save, and I deliberately go out of my way to declare that only you can. This can't. A fast literally is a chosen weakness to allow God to demonstrate his strength. 
So all Judah, so a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. The prayer of Jehoshaphat, which has to rank as one of the most amazing prayers in history. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hands is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster come upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. So what we have, just I'm going to pause there for a second. We have a prayer, and in this prayer, what you're going to notice Jehoshaphat doing is he is obeying the word of God. He is doing exactly as God prescribed. If famine, sword, any sort of pestilence, any sort of danger, any sort of weakness comes upon you, you stand before this temple and in my name make your petition known, will I not save you? And and Jehoshaphat is referring to that. He is saying, did you not promise? And before the nation, he is standing on the word of God. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. So this is part of his prayer still. He's speaking to the fact that when they came into the land of Israel, they did not destroy these three nations. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. I'm going to repeat that line. Now, I want you to remember here real quick. I know I'm talking about a story from 2,800 years ago. And you can say, what does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. It's the word of God. And those that are believers have received an inheritance of this very story. For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. You see, when God is creating a weakness, oftentimes the very definition of a weakness is in and of your own strength, you cannot overcome it. Now, there is no situation that any of us ever want to enter into which is beyond our own natural ability. We will avoid those like the plague. And yet God sees fit to allow even the enemy to come in. He's like, I want them, I want them. And God seems to back off, and the enemy comes in even. And God uses even what the enemy means for evil against us for good. You see, God uses all things, and he turns them all, he converts them all into a powerful demonstration of his nature. For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. You ever felt that? Okay, God, I can't overcome this obstacle. I have no clue what to do. Hmm. But our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah with their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord. So that's a great picture of weakness. You have three armies coming against you. You bring your wife and kids. You all come to Jerusalem and you stand there. And in and of itself, it's a picture of weakness. See, it's not guns and armaments. It's women and children. And we say, God, without you, we cannot pull this off. 
Part two, the word of God steps into the story. Jehoshaphat knew the scriptures. He knew what God had promised, and he was holding God to that promise. But he felt weak, and he didn't know what to do. This is where many of you find yourself, where you know the word of God, but you don't know how it relates to your circumstance, or you don't know what to do. You were surrounded by three armies, and it seems like just last month you were surrounded by three armies. And yet, every single situation in life demands something. And I want to lead you on a little bread trail here to say, we have the Word of God in text, known as Scripture. And yet, God desires to give you specific instruction out of that text, which applies to your situation so you know what to do instead of just stand there. The four mindsets of the triumphant. So the first one was the strength of weakness. The next one I want to introduce you to is the power and personalization of the Word of God. Many of us believe that the Word of God is God's Word, but to appropriate that Word into this life is a big step. And yet it's the number one step that God wants to teach you In your Christianity, if it's distant and far off and it's not yours, well, then it doesn't have power in your life. You see, that word, which in the Greek uh, is understood as the logos, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus Christ. The word, the text of Scripture was fulfilled in one man. His name is Jesus. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's what I want you to understand. There's another Greek word that is translated as word in the New Testament, And it's been taken hostage by uh, different camps in Christianity, which makes it hard for us to know how to discuss it as mature Christians, because for fear, lest we become wild-eyed fanatics that take God out of context and, you know, have all sorts of voices speaking in our life, having us do things that don't match with Scripture. And yet that's the word rhema. Rhema is a word that certain camps in Christianity will never mention, even though it's all throughout the New Testament, and other camps talk about probably way too much. And yet, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's one of the best ways to understand rhema. The Word became rhema and dwelt among us. It became tangible. The Word of God could just be theoretical to you, but it needs to become yours. You need to own it. God intends it to go from being just a general word that is true for all eternity into being true for you, where you own it, you adopt it as yours, and you say, that's my scripture. That means this to me. And that's exactly what you're going to see happen here. Jehoshaphat knows the scriptures, but he still knows, he doesn't know what to do. He knows what God has said, but he doesn't know what to do against these three armies. In every situation, God wants to give you wisdom. And another way of just understanding rhema is wisdom. It is a very specific application of the general providence promise of God into your specific situation. So you know how to take that logos, that life of Christ, and live it now. If you only have the big picture of God and you don't know how he wants to animate and flesh it out in and through you, what do you have? You have a great mind, but no life to match it. God desires to animate this, to flesh out the scriptures in and through us, to bring that incarnation, if you will, that rhema into us so that we see it, we know what to do, and out of our life flows the fruit of God. So I'm going to describe it this way. God has revealed to us his nature, his ways, and his purpose in and through the logos. 
But he takes that nature, those ways, and that purpose and personalizes it in our individual lives via the rhema. Matthew 4, 4, but he answered and said, this is Jesus talking, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's not logos, that's rhema. In other words, what is the secret of a believer's living? What was the secret of Jesus? He says, I have food that others know not of. It's that he didn't just know the scriptures, but that he took that living source, that manna daily, and ate it. You see, God has real riches for us. You could go to the same scripture that you have studied for 10 straight years and go to it tomorrow and find something deeper and fresh in it. How does that work? The Holy Spirit takes from the big global common given scripture known as the Logos and he brings it to us individually over and over daily so that we have something that we can stand on and believe and it is our sustenance, it is our life. You need a fresh word of God today. You need to know what God is saying into your life. Not just what he has said, but what he's saying. And he's always talking. God takes from his word. The Holy Spirit takes from that logos and brings it to you and makes it live within you. Luke 1, for for with God nothing shall be impossible. This is a conclusive statement from a messenger, that an angel that has come to Mary and said, inside your womb, Uh, we are going to bring forth the Messiah. Okay, pretty amazing, right? Uh, But Mary said, hey, you know, I I don't have a a man uh, to sort of make that happen right now. Uh, I won't go into any greater detail into that, but this is the comment. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. That's Ramah. And the angel departed from her. Now, I'm going to also show you that other nothing. You know what that is? That's rhema. What it says is, for with God, no rhema shall be impossible. In other words, I've given you a word very specific to you. All throughout the Old Testament is the promises of the Messiah. That's the logos. But it's going to be made flesh inside of her womb. You see, and it's impossible that this would happen, that you could possibly change it. That grand triumph could actually be made real in and through you. And yet what we have is for there's no rhema that God, the Spirit of God, takes from that incredible promise, that magnificent masterpiece known as Scripture, and he fleshes it out in us. Are you going to be like Mary and say, do it. Do it in here today. I want that that which comes out of my life to be the Son of God to be the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For with God, nothing is impossible. With you, you can't produce that fruit. But with God, he will. So what happens? Jehoshaphat has stood before the house of the Lord. He has called a fast. He's weak. What happens? God gives him the specific. He fleshes out that age-old Logos promise into a very specific point of wisdom. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel and said, Listen, all of you of Judah and of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, every day when you wake up in the morning, do you go after this? With the expectancy to say the Spirit of God wants to take from that logos, that scripture, and bring it into your situation and make it live to give you hope, fresh courage, fresh life. Don't live on yesterday's courage. 
God has courage for you today. Don't live on yesterday's promises. Live on today's. Yes, they're the same. But God wants to freshen them straight out of the oven. Golden brown butter slab on top. That goes down the side. You cut it open. Smells, you know, fills the whole house. Oh, that's what you want daily. Many of us are still living on old stuff. It's not that it's wrong. It's just that God wants to ratify it afresh inside of us. God's not saying anything new today. But he wants to say it afresh in your soul so that you would believe the good news arrives. And he said, listen, all of you Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Now you knew that. Why do you need to hear it afresh today? You knew that. Who does the fighting? Who does the saving? It's not you. Why is it that you need to hear it again? Because that's the way we are. We have to have the fresh stuff. We have an appetite. We have a digestive system spiritually that needs food daily. Even if it's the same meal, manna. We need the same thing over and over again. For the battle is not yours, people. But it's God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Let me say it again. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them for the Lord is with you. See, it's one thing to know that God has defeated the enemy time and time again. He parted the Red Sea and swallowed up the Egyptian cavalry. Oh, and then remember how he defeated the Philistines. Remember when Jonathan and the armor bearer went up against them? Do you remember that one story of David standing against Goliath and cutting off his head and then routing that stronger army? Do you remember? Do you remember? But for many of us, it's grand, big picture logos. It's the scripture and we believe it. But we need that triumphant God, the same God that worked yesterday, to promise to us as an individual. And you are in my sight today. And do you know what I did for them? I will also do it for you. We don't just need the big picture. Oh, we do. Because the rhema will never contradict it. When he is taking from his big word into your small life, he only and always matches with it. And that's how you can test where it comes from. He says, do you remember Jehoshaphat? You nod your head. He said, remember how I said I would fight for him? You say, yeah. He goes, the same is for you. And that's what many of you just need today. You need to know that this is for you. It's not just for Eric Ludi. It's not just for Jehoshaphat. But the Spirit of God is wanting to bring the Word of God to bear upon your soul. The very introduction to Christianity is giving up our life and giving up our strength, our gifts, our abilities, our future plans, our ambitions. It's laying it all down. Whatever he chooses to raise up out of that is his business, but it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And anything good that comes out of this life has to go to him as credit. And the only way that that could happen is Eric and you, all of us in here need to empty ourselves and say, God, this is your stage, it's not mine. But when we resist that, then we end up hindering the revelation of his strength. 
What you see in Jehoshaphat's life, which is the pattern for us and is the fresh manna for us this morning, is that he was willing to accept the weakness and he he turned his gaze upon the living God and then God told him what to do. Go out against them. I will fight this battle. Now, if you knew that, if you knew that God was the one that was going to fight your battle, would it change your attitude, your inner climate of your soul? If you knew that he was saying that to you, put your name in front of that promise. The battle is not yours. It's God's. If you knew that in your exact situation, how would you live different if you knew God was the one that was going to do the work? That is called faith. When you know that God's word is true and you know that what he's spoken to you is in fact his word, you rest. You can stand still. You can stand confident. My God is in control. You don't need to labor. You don't need to toil. You don't need to sharpen your sword. You need to trust. The great work of the Christian is to believe. To believe what? The word of God. Big word and the fleshed out word in us. God leads all of us. I mean, you study the life of George Mueller and his entire life, if you read his biography, is the rhema that he received. And he said, and God spoke to me here and I knew to build this orphanage. He spoke to me here and I knew to take in these kids. He spoke to me here and I knew not to ask for money even though we had no food. And I knew God would provide. How did he know? Because God took from his logos, his scripture, and he made it clear unto one man who was living dependent and weak. And God showed his triumphant growl to the generation in which he lived and still it reverberates to our generation. And many of us in here have been greatly impacted by that one man's willingness to accept weakness in his life so that God could use his life as a stage for his strength. Where does the inexplicable triumph come from? It comes from that stage. When we choose weakness and we turn to God, God makes His word known to us. We believe it, and then we respond. The four mindsets of the triumphant. So we're on number three right now. We have the strength of weakness, the power and personalization of the word of God, and then the praise that proceeds, which means it comes before. If you knew that the battle was God's, if you knew that he had promised to fight for you, and that he would bring low this greater power than you, if you knew that, what would you do now? If you really knew it, a smile would crease your soul. A little leap might enter into your being. Why? Because he's God. And God has promised. And God cannot lie. And God is going before us to do that which I can't do. He will accomplish the impossible. He will. You see, you can read the story of Jehoshaphat and not come away with that conclusion in your own life. And yet God's intention is to breathe. Have the same Holy Spirit that carried along the rider carry you along. To say, do you not recognize that this word still lives today and it wants to live in you? That this same word wants to become flesh in you. And actually animate this reality in our modern day. If it is true that God has given you the victory. If it is true that he has promised to fight for you and that your enemies are in fact and in truth defeated then the singing should start right now. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. This is his response to hearing the word of God. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. Do you know that these guys are surrounded by three armies right now? 
And what are they doing? They're in weakness. They have their women and children around them. They've been fasting physically. In every practical way, they're weakened. And yet, they're living as victors. How could they do that? This is faith in the Word of God. When you believe the Word of God, the singing doesn't start after the battle. It starts now because God has given you promise and He cannot lie. The singing soldiers. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. I don't know what army in all of history has ever thought of doing this outside of the army of God. Your singers are being sent out in front of you. Could you imagine fighting with your trombone? In other words, this is irrational unless you know that God's the one fighting for you. And then it's actually totally reasonable. Send out our singers. God will do the work. You see, there's something so profound here. What praise is to us as Christians is the statement of our faith. It is a statement of the fact that we believe the word of God. That's where it's supposed to come from. If some of you are lacking that praise in your soul, it's very likely that you're lacking the clear word of God in your soul for your circumstance. And as a result, there is one place you need to start. Go to God. Stand before his temple and say, God, I'm weak, but I need to know your word. I need to stand on something solid. I need to know why this soul ought to praise. And God is very faithful to give you that reason. Because the God of armies has never changed. In him is no shadow of turning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it's impossible for him to lose a battle. And when you begin to grab a hold of that as a believer in your life in modern America you will start singing too. The God response to childlike faith. So what does God do in response to this singing? The singing soldiers. Now when they begin to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah. And they were defeated. God is the master of understatements. That's what he tells us. Ambushes. That's what God did. You know that they all killed each other? I mean, this is, doesn't it sound like last week's message? Yep, same God. It's amazing, but Jehoshaphat and his army, in their weakness, defeated three armies without even lifting a weapon, unless you call faith a weapon. And they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. Part four, the outrageous spoil. I'm struggling to know how to 
bring the personal dimension from my life into this. Uh, I really intimately know this message. And what I'm sharing with you is the fresh manna God has given me. In fact, I could say that that's what every sermon is. You can usually tell what's going on in my life by the fact that I'm preaching on it, if that makes sense. God is taking truths that may have the capacity to grow stale on the pantry shelf of Eric Ludy's life, and God says, let's take that off. I want to give you a fresh batch. Same truth, same recipe, but it takes me deeper. I, I don't know that I can go into any detail right now, but... Uh, I have been going through such a strenuous test of soul and been so weakened by the whole process. And it's been one of the most extraordinary little stretches of time in my walk with God that I can ever remember. That's saying a lot. And even like today is Lily's birthday, uh, our little six-year-old now. And... Three years ago today, uh, recent Lily came home from Haiti. If any of you know the Haiti story, you'll, you'll recognize that I've, I've gone through other situations where there's been extreme weakness, and I've seen the power of God come through. And that's the testimony of my life. If I were to write down my biography right now, I would have some incredible testimonies to show God's faithfulness. But it's interesting that in the midst of this, uh, like a year ago, Yesterday, we purchased the campus. That was like, oh, I don't know, 23 years of prayer. And so you have to recognize the timing of all these things. I've seen the power of God break through, but I've also recognized the pattern. God brings me to my weakest point and then does his strongest work. It's right when I finally get to the point where it's just like, God, I, I, I don't have any solutions for this. He was like, did you actually think you were going to bring the solution anyways? And I realized afresh, it's like, why do I keep doing that? I'm a brainstormer. I'm an ideas guy. I have tons of great ideas. And God knows that I can trip up my own spiritual development with my natural strengths. And so he brings me to the place where I have no more ability in and of myself. And he says, now I can use it. Moses he had it all figured out. He was going to save his people. I mean, isn't it obvious that Moses is the deliverer of Israel? I mean, come on. It's about as clear as you can get. Even Moses knew it. So he took it into his own hands. Sort of messed things up. Ends up on the backside of the wilderness for 40 years and finally comes to the conclusion that he can't do it. And then when does God decide to use him? Right then. When Moses was weak. When Moses didn't feel comfortable to speak. When Moses felt inferior to the task. And now God says, now I can reveal my strength in and through you. This is the pattern. This is how it works. You see, you have been robbed from, you live in hostile territory. You're attempting to stand up as a Christian in this realm. And this realm mocks you. It robs you, it beats you up and lays you on the side of the road. And unfortunately, many of us are like the Levite and the priest who walk right on by. In other words, God wants us to know that he will not fail us even when his system of recovery, the church, does. We live in an age and a generation of weakness. Let's leverage it. The fact that the church may be weaker right now than ever before, actually, let's allow that to be God's stage. Because who would ever guess that God would use this? 
to show forth his grandeur and to show his power like he's ever shown it before. Most of us aren't coming to that conclusion. I think we need the word of God on the matter. Because the word of God doesn't stutter. What if we were to get the fresh word of God on the matter and he was to say, you, me, you, 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 the church at large, global. I want to reveal myself in and through you. We see what's going on in this culture around us. We see the moral meltdown. We see the political divide. We see the forthcoming civil war. We don't have to be idiots. You can see it. And yet, what is needed in this culture? Not debate. Not political moxie. The power of God. And we're the perfect stage for it right now as far as I'm concerned. Because the church today is pathetic. We're weak. But if there is a remnant that desires like King Jehoshaphat to turn, humble themselves, repent, seek his face, he will do wonders. The outrageous spoil. So the four mindsets of the triumphant. We started with the strength of weakness, the power and personalization of the word of God, the praise that precedes the secret of happiness. Every difficulty equals greater soul gain. Every challenge translates into greater grace. Every trial is the opportunity for more of God in our lives. Therefore, every day, no matter how bleak, is the greatest day of our lives. Leslie and I were rehearsing some of these truths. We were going through the Bible on the fact that God converts weakness into strength and that he repays. He restores what the locust, the canker worm have eaten. God is a restorer of that which is stolen. He's a just God. He's a redeemer. And so we were thinking about the story of Zacchaeus. And usually when you think of the story of Zacchaeus, you don't think of... If you're identifying with it, you're usually identifying with Zacchaeus. (laughs) However, think about this. This guy's a scoundrel. He's a thief. He's a robber. And what has he done? He's taken good Jews and he's stolen from them. And Jesus steps into Zacchaeus' house. And what does he do? He defends those that were stolen from they end up getting four times the amount. By the way, that's one of the best investments you could ever do. Zacchaeus comes to your house, and he says, give me $100. And you're thinking, okay, that equates to 400 Here you go. In other words, in the kingdom of heaven, there is no downside. You want to know the secret of happiness? When the devil comes in to steal, kill, and destroy, guess what? God gets more out of it than the devil could ever steal. It's called the outrageous spoil. Mathematically, it's hilarious. We lose... And we gain? I mean, God lost his life. I mean, he gave up everything, and guess what? Uh, He returned in full power with us in tow to the Holy of Holies. I know, it looked like defeat. In fact, it was the greatest victory. You have to understand that in your life. You could wallow in the fact that the enemy is robbed from you. Or you could start thinking like a Christian that says, God will restore what the locusts have eaten. God will bring back multiple fold that which has been robbed from my soul. So I don't care if you've been off your game for a week and the devil's stolen a week out of your life. Hey, that's a month back. In other words, I want you to go after the promise of God, the fact that he gives spoil to those who simply trust him. He doesn't just defeat the enemy, but just watch. The spoil belongs to the believing 
When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies. Now, I don't know who goes to war carrying all their jewels and riches, but guess what? Can't you just imagine they had some bet uh, amongst them all? It's like, we're richer than you. Okay, after we defeat the, uh, Judah, uh, Judah, we'll compare riches and see who has the most. And God's like, got them right where I want them. I mean, these guys are idiots. That's all you can say. They bring all their wealth with them. They found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. Have you ever had that happen in your life? I mean, it's like, what? What's this? More than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. Spiritually, I'm not, and most of you immediately go to your bank account on this one. I know. They could probably use some help. However, you need to recognize that spiritually, this is where it starts. That we can rejoice in all circumstances and situations because God converts every bit of loss and pain and difficulty and challenge and trial into greater gain. That's why Paul says rejoice. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. I mean, this is what we're supposed to do. Rejoice. Again, I'm going to tell you guys, rejoice. Don't you know our God? He returns that which is stolen plus interest. He shakes down the enemy and gets all the coins out. Hey, I know there's more in there. He says, "Uh aha. He's like, I only stole a buck from you. Yeah, we're taking a hundred from you, though, bucko. In other words, God is on our side when we simply humble ourselves, accept the weakness, believe in him, set the praise uh, team out in front of us, and start marching. This is a story of us. Now, for some of you, it might be a struggle. You're hearing something from a stage, and you still feel like it's for the guy next to you instead of for you. And that is the very thing I think the Holy Spirit wants to address in your life. When you go to the scriptures, this is the inheritance of, the, of, of faith, is that scripture becomes yours. And God will take it line by line throughout your life and b- begin to bring it into flesh for you where he begins to take that amazing revelation and make it yours. You ever just felt like a, a book in the Bible, like one that you memorized growing up is just your book, and when someone misquotes it, it really bothers you? It's like, that's mine. That's my scripture. What are they doing with it? And yet, it's our scripture in a general sense, yes, but God also wants to personalize it to each one of us without violating. He doesn't change his word for each one of us. Same word, but it's ours. And we know what it means to us. And God says, move on that. Trust me with it. And on the fourth day, remember it took three days just to collect the spoil. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Barakah, which means the Valley of Blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Barakah until this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them, to go back to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. I can't answer for you. I just know the battle that we're in. And I know that it is intensified in this particular country. I know it's not just in this country, but in this country we have a very, very sharp drop in our spiritual lives. The spiritual health of Christianity is in direct correspondence to the 
spiritual strengthening of the devil in our world. And what we've seen is a loss of spiritual strength. Many of you have felt that around you. You feel alone. You feel, am I the only one that believes these things? Leslie was speaking in an event this weekend, and uh, the reason she was chosen is she was the one speaker that they could find that used the word of God when she spoke. It's like, there has to be more. And we know there's more. However, what has happened in Christianity when, when people speak, they don't even use the Bible? What, I, what are you using? <laughs> what, what else is credible? What else matters? What else has the basis on which we can build our lives? What else is the rock, the foundation? There's only one, and when we move away from that, we move away from everything that is sound and everything that stabilizes us. So for you, wherever you are at, we could have different gradients of difficulty in here. We could have different gradients of weakness. However, weakness for each one of us as individuals feels like weakness. It doesn't matter. You don't need to compare notes and say, well, I'm weaker than you or you're weaker than me. You know, it doesn't make any difference. We're weak. When you first put on skis and you get on a little bunny hill, guess what? It's hard. And yet there's someone who's jumping out of a helicopter onto a double black diamond, and guess what? To them, they're sweating bullets as they're about to jump out, yet they've been skiing their entire life. And what is it? It's hard. In other words, God tests us to where we're ready to be tested. It really makes no difference. Some of us are just starting in this whole trial of weakness. Some of us have been... Uh, doing some hard jumps for a while, and yet for each one of us, we need the same truth. We need to rehearse the same realities. We need the Spirit of God to bring the clear word to us. We need wisdom for today. We need to know how we're supposed to live. We need to know what to expect of God. We need to be reminded that He is the same God that defeated the Egyptians, that defeated the Philistines, that defeated the three armies. We need to know that He's the same God that cried out, It is finished, and crushed the head of the serpent. We need to remember this afresh. I don't care if you've heard it 10,000 times. You need 10,001. You need to hear this to your soul today. And the response should be vigorous. The response should be to bow down, to worship, to exclaim, to extol. When you see it, when you hear the clear word of God to your life, there is no proper response but to fall down, to give him his praise because you believe it. It is your word now. It is not just for the masses. It is now just for you, for your circumstances. That's how much he loves you. Cherish the intimate factor of the spiritual life. Key truths. God is not afraid of our weakness or of us becoming weak. God needs to be the lone solution and he will see fit to prove that every other option fails. It's frustrating for us when we keep turning to other options and they keep failing. And then God says, have you learned the lesson yet? God knows you are human, but do you know that he is God? You know, many of us think that God doesn't know that we're human. Oh, he does. But he's wondering, do you know that he is God? Though you feel weak and though physically and practically you are weak, quote out of the gospel message, he remains almighty. The enemy may steal from you, but God restores all that the enemy steals, even fourfold. God and God alone can carry this impossible weight, and he delights to. So I want to, as we finish today, I want to give you some action, okay? I'm going to call these possible repentance points. I don't know exactly what's going on inside of each of you. I know what's been going on inside of me. 
And oftentimes God will give me an understanding of our body by zinging me in unique ways, by reminding me. You see, at every point, just like as I'm about to, maybe I'm dealing with some weakness that you've never tasted, at levels you've never tasted. It makes no difference. He reminds me as I'm sweating bullets, and he says, that's how they feel. Right there. You know that, Eric? You know that, that sense of weakness that you're feeling? That's what they feel. It doesn't matter which level we're at in this process of maturity. We're all going through something. We're being sanctified so that our stage would constantly be protected. It says, for God alone, for his glory alone. Maybe you've been disagreeing with God about your weakness and grumbling about it instead of cherishing it. What should you do if that's the case? Repent. Change your mind about your weakness and cherish it as an opportunity for God to work. Maybe you've been treating the word of Scripture as a stale piece of bread, no longer useful for your life's current challenge. Maybe you've been like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro instead of asking God for wisdom and then believing your God will give it. If God says he will give it, he will give it. Maybe you've been given promises in God's word, even your own personalized version, but have forgotten it and have moved away from a position of assurance. You have not persevered in the truth. Maybe you have turned to other things outside of God for your salvation, for your rescue. We all have circumstances in which we need to be rescued. Maybe some of us have turned away from God to find that solution in earthly things instead of remaining and waiting for God to fight our battle for us. Maybe it's not what you have done, but what you haven't done, like sending out your singers ahead of you. Maybe there's been a lack of real, genuine, faith-filled praising going on in your life. God, I knew your word, but I, I haven't praised you like I should. Forgive me for that. I want to be a praised-filled soul. Maybe you've been taking this battle into your own hands and trying to fight the trifold army all by your lonesome. Maybe you've tried to find the believer's spoil somewhere other than in the supernatural work of God. You ever tried to get the grand delights of Christianity somewhere other than through believing? Through becoming weak and trusting him and letting him fight the battles for you? It's the only way to get it. Maybe you haven't been viewing your trials through the lens of truth and have been believing a lie. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. I want you to stick your name in this. My grace is sufficient for you. Stick your name in. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, most gladly, should you rather boast in your infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon you. Therefore, we, the body of Christ, take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when we are weak, then we are strong fact. And if you've been arguing with that fact, repent. It's time we get right with the word of God. Set our face to seek him. Heed his word. Set our singers out in front of us and go to battle. Going to battle with singers in front doesn't mean you don't go to battle. You still go to battle, but you have your faith in front. You see, our weapon, our chief weapon is the fact that we believe the word of God. And that's what tears down the entire infrastructure of the enemy's army. 
We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.